Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please welcome back Dr. John Cutterback. Thank you. Well, I basically see my lectures as a footnote to what Sabatino says anyway. Um, <clears throat> and um, he might go the cheap route bringing in his brother, but I assure you he's not going the cheap route bringing me in. <laughs> well, we better get right down to business. Quick, quick uh, review of last week. The idea was to give some sense last week of, of what we mean by wisdom and some thoughts on how to attain it. This week is a, a little bit more of a smorgasbord of some fundamental insights that are insights of wisdom. So we're not so much talking about what wisdom is, but giving a little bit of an overview of some fundamental things that the wise have said, just to help give a picture of what wise people have seen and some things that we could come to see ourselves. But just to, again a word on, on, on last week we quoted the great line from Aristotle that it belongs to the wise man to order and we gave the little trio of he sees order, he lives order, and he gives order. And we noted how there's a close connection between human happiness and wisdom which we will return to today. As regards the issue of how to come to wisdom, we emphasize particularly a point that Socrates is very strong on making, and that is it's key, first of all, that we realize that there are key questions that we don't have the answers to, that there is a wisdom to be had that we don't yet have. And, and I, I loved it. I, just, I actually just finished my intro to philosophy course today with the, with the students at Christendom. And I reminded them that there's nothing else that they take away from that introductory course. If they take away this, then they take away much. That there is a wisdom. A wisdom for which we were made and which we do not yet have. And a wisdom that we will only come to if we make it the specific object of our search that nobody becomes wise by accident. So we need to realize there are these great questions that we have not yet answered or these beautifully deep realities that we have not yet seen into as we should. And for help in doing that we need to turn to the wise. And then it's part of God's providence that we use our reason particularly then in turning to the wise and under their tutelage being able to come to see these fundamental truths which then also uh, very much enhance and go together with divine revelation and we have the two wings that we mentioned last time of faith and reason. Again this week we're going to look at some fundamental insights and I have divided them into two and that is first of all what fundamental truths did these great philosophers see when they looked at the natural world around them? And then secondly, what truths did they see when they looked at human nature or human persons? And that's our fundamental division. Again, first, what are some fundamental things that they saw, that they were able to see when they looked at the natural world around them? And, and, and this one to me is, 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 is particularly exciting and I think one where we'll see especially how, and I'm referring specifically to these great men, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, how their view of the natural world was so different. They, amazingly enough, were able to see so much there 
that in the dominant modern view of this amazing world around us, it's just not there, as, as we'll come back to. We might be looking at the same world, but we're not seeing what they were seeing. Let's go ahead and look at it. The first thing I'm, I want to bring back is the notion of order. We talked about that a, a bit last week. These philosophers see in the natural world around us order. And I want to talk about two kinds of order that they see. First of all, they see a hierarchy. So that's a kind of order. And then they also see what's called order to the ends. That one's a little bit more tricky, and we'll come to that in a moment. But let's, let's start with the first one. Very simple point, but it's very much, I think, worth emphasizing. When they looked in the world around them, they were very much impressed with the truth that some things are higher than others. Now, have you ever noticed it's a, it's a funny thing of our language? It's, it's really... And philosophers stop and, and notice the, the strangest things. But have you ever thought about why do we call some things higher than others? What exactly would it mean to call them higher? It goes way, way, way back. But I think it, it fundamentally goes back to both through divine revelation and just on the natural level. There's this sense of there are some things that are closer to the gods. The gods, as it were, are, are up. And so we speak of things being higher and lower. And they look at the world around them and they say, everything is good, but some things are better. So they, they focus on the distinction between animate and inanimate. Even what is inanimate is good, but what is animate alive is better, more noble, more rich than among living things. Some are animals, some are just plants. And to be an animal is better, it's higher. There's something more wonderful going on here. And then among animals, lo and behold, wonder of wonders, some are rational. And that's better. That's, oh, so much better. You know, interestingly, we, we as Christians take this point for granted. Do you know, Plato was the first thinker we know of who made absolutely explicit there is a realm of the immaterial. The immaterial realm. And it is higher before that, the earlier thinkers, they had, they had spoken in terms, and I'm talking about outside of the, the area of explicit divine revelation in the Hebrew tradition. Earlier thinkers had spoken of higher things, even had spoken of gods, but they had never come explicitly to an understanding of there literally is a realm that is immaterial. Note the interesting thing. These philosophers have a very strong sense of how we're getting into a realm that's very difficult for us to know about. Note how we name it by what it's not. We call it the immaterial, as though the most important thing that you could say about the immaterial realm is that it's not material. You've, of course, only begun to address what it is, but Plato was very, very clear on this. And he connects the realm of the immaterial with the realm of the rational. And so he saw, but again, the first one to clearly, philosophically express this, human beings have in them something immaterial, for they are rational. And they make this connection between rationality and immateriality. And they see very clearly that this is at the top. And indeed, as we'll see further as we go on here, this is what the material world must even be about. But just there, I want to stop there as regards to this notion of order or hierarchy. There are things that are much more important or higher. That's not to denigrate the others, but it's just to see some things are much more important. So that's the order that I would call the order of hierarchy, simply higher and lower. 
Now here's another kind of order that's an extremely important one, and I'll do my best to make this clearer, then feel free to ask questions in the, in the question-answer period. This is actually a more important order according to the philosophers, and also later according to theologians. It's what's called order to the end. Order to the end. And I'll put it to you this way. The neat thing about this kind of order is it unites many things. Many things that have the same end. Another name for end is goal or purpose. Many things that have the same end are united together by being in order towards that end. And let me use an example. Picture something like a club. What exactly is a club? Clearly, in some sense, it's one. There must be a certain unity to it. What gives a club a unity? What gives it unity is its end, or its goal, or its purpose. These people have come together for this purpose. Different members of the club might have different roles in that club, but they are brought together in order, each having its own place. And in order, everything always has its own place. But the place is given by what the end or the goal is. A club then would be called what the philosophers say a unity of order, something that is made in some sense one by having one goal. Now, a club is a very low example of that. In fact, many of the most important things in our lives are what we call unities of order. I'll give you another example. The family is a unity of order. What makes a family be one? What really makes it be one? Sure, you could point to a tie of, of blood, but is that what most fundamentally makes it be one? What fundamentally makes a family be one reality is that it has one end. They are joined together in the, shall we say, project of the parents raising these children. There are even more important unities of order. The church is a unity of order. What makes it be one? It is one because it is gathered together all in service of seeking together, each having his and her own place in this amazing reality, all about the ends that Christ has given it. Well, what did these philosophers see then when they looked at the natural world around them? One thing they were absolutely sure of, the entire universe is one, not in some type of misguided pantheistic way, as though it's all God, no. Simply, it's all one in the sense of it's all ordered to one thing. It's all about coming to some great end, some great fullness together. They were absolutely sure of that. From the lowest to the highest, this, there's an amazing unity in the order that it has. And somehow, it's about something one. Pause. I have promised to remain strictly philosophical and to keep from, from heading off. But every now and then, I might just give a little hint as to how the theological completion could come to that. Note how that leaves itself perfectly open to, well, what would make it be one? What could possibly have gathered it together so that it could all be united and be about one thing? Indeed, the theologians will say, oh, yes, indeed. The natural world 
is about one thing and one thing alone. The ancient philosophers weren't clear on what that one thing was, but when they saw the natural world, boy, did they see it as a place of order and things working together. More specifically, as regards what's called order to the end, they also were absolutely convinced that everything in that natural world, from top to bottom, has a purpose. Everything has a purpose, or another name for that again is ends. Just, you know, a technical name for that is teleology, for telos is the Greek word that means ends. Or sometimes also it's called finality, teleology, that everything has a purpose, that everything has some state, as it were, that it's working towards, that is its completion or its fullness. If you would, take a look at the uh, quotation sheet. First of all, I'm going to read you both quotation number one and quotation number two. First one is from Aristotle's Metaphysics, and the second one is from Aristotle's Physics, two of his major works. And all things are ordered together somehow, but not all alike, both fishes and fowls and plants. And the world is not such that one thing has nothing to do with another, but they are connected, for all are ordered together to one end. But it is as in a house. And he goes on and talks about how in the house different things fit in differently within that order to the end. But each has its place. They don't see themselves as thinking poetically here. They're saying, is this not clearly the case? That when you look at the natural world, it really is something where everything has a place. Going on now in the second quotation, this is where getting more specific about how everything within that world has a purpose to it, even going down to the lowest inanimate things, though of course it's most clear in living things. And this is why I think it's, this, is, this is so important for us today. Just one little snippet here from Aristotle, the famous one. For teeth and all other natural things invariably or normally come about in a given way, but of not one of the results of chance or spontaneity is this true. Aristotle liked to use as an example of the purposiveness of nature. He liked to simply use the example of teeth in an animal. And he said that from the start, the mouth of an animal is formed in such a way with teeth positioned perfectly in the back for crushing, in the front for tearing. That's almost a quotation from Aristotle. He said, clearly, teeth are for eating. It's a very simple point, but it's one of transcendent importance. Things in nature have a purpose. They have a goal. They have something that they're for. And there was nary a doubt in their minds about this. And this very simple point that he notes here, by the way, is extremely relevant for the whole very difficult realm of evolution and related questions. But he notes in the second clause again, but if not one of the results of chance or spontaneity is this true, namely that they come about in the invariable way that things by nature come about. Let me put it to you this way. Aristotle would be utterly astounded that someone would look at the natural world and suggest that the obvious order therein could have ever come about randomly. It's philosophically absurd to suggest that. It's philosophically absurd to suggest that randomness would ever be the cause of order. One thing that was very clear, again, to them was that order is higher and better. Randomness does not cause 
order. A thing cannot give what it does not have. So that the randomness would cause order to come about is, is and, and by the way, footnote, Aristotle was an amazing scientist. He, he was the best of the scientists of his age. He knew the natural world up and down. So that, that conviction is something, again, that would have implications for many things today, but we're not going to pursue that further. I would just end this section on the order that they see in the world, starting with the order of hierarchy, then going on to the order of the end. I'll just note, they also were impressed that the natural world is a place of surpassing beauty. And I just want to particularly emphasize that. Do you know how beauty is traditionally defined? Beauty is traditionally defined as the splendor of order. The splendor of order. I would note, quick point of comparison, modern philosopher, name of David Hume, 1711 to 1776, in a work on natural theology, he asks the question of his reader and he expects the answer that will be given. He says, if you look at the world around you, do you really think that that's the kind of world that both an omnipotent and an all-good God would create? One who's both omnipotent and good would make this world? He asks that question, and it's obvious from the context that he thinks that your answer to that question would be, no. I just want to come straight back at that and say, he and Aristotle might be looking at the same world, but they are not seeing the same thing. Another point from these men's view of the natural world is the primacy of rest. Now, I know that sounds a little bit funny, but I think you're going to like this point. Aristotle, in both what's called his physics and his metaphysics, makes clear that stability is more fundamental than change. Stability is more fundamental than change. He holds that change begins from what is stable and it always tends back towards what is stable. But that the primary reality is what is stable or unchanging. Note his whole understanding of change is that really the only reason for change is so that something could move closer to something higher. Or as it were, the only reason for change is that so that things could get better. And this is what he thinks he sees. Again, just looking at the natural world, that he sees change as a rule there's always some exceptions, but change as a rule is going towards what's better. Now, he's not talking about the realm of human freedom. That would be something distinct. Because, of course, there humans can, can do many bad things. But he's talking about just in the way that, the, in general, that the natural world works. Is that change is for the sake of going towards what's better, what's more perfect. This, we're only going to be able to touch and go on this. I love this point because, to me, this is one of these beautiful insights into the natural world that speaks volumes for human life. Just looking at the natural world, they would say this, life is not most of all about motion. Life is most of all about fruition. It's about coming to what's full and then resting there. Things seek the rest of fullness. 
He would see this all around, especially in living things. Especially in living things. That all that they do is fundamentally about coming to a certain completion. And then when they get there, as it were, to rest, to endure in that greater completion. Comment as regards modern philosophy. One of the most remarkable things when you study modern philosophers, you almost always find they have no notion of rest. Their philosophies are fundamentally about change, as though change is for its own sake. I love the simple insight. Aristotle would say, just from looking at the natural world, you would be able to say the following. Change is only good if it's about going someplace better. Otherwise, why would one change? Hegel, Marx, these are 19th century, Nietzsche, Sartre, I'm not sure whether you've heard, or perhaps you've heard, or how much you know about these names. I'm just going to just say this to you. They, in their whole conception, especially of man, they tend not to speak about the natural world. That's an interesting thing. They see it as below them. In general, these more modern philosophers they don't even concern themselves with that. In their explanations of human nature, it's all about change. It's all about overcoming it's all about work as overcoming things, for instance. Or as man as becoming something that he's not, in the sense of constantly changing. So, I just present to you as a snapshot of the wisdom of the ancients that they see in just looking at the world around them. Life is about rest. Resting in that which is worthy to be rested in. The majority of modern philosophers don't even have a notion of certain things as worthy to be rested in. It's always overcome. It's always change. It's always technological advance. Before I go on, do you know what the definition of peace is? the tranquility of order. The tranquility of order. The ancients are all about peace. Peace in a fullness. A peace that has to be achieved. I turn now to the view of man, thus the view of the natural world, although that was already fraught with many implications for the view of man. The fundamental thing here is, it's all about understanding the R word. It's all about reason. And so two things, and then that's it. In the view of man, the first thing about reason is that reason is what sets human beings apart from everything else. Simple point, but especially in this day and age, it's mission critical that we understand this point. So reason is what sets us apart. And then second point is that it is in using reason well that human beings become happy. And it's there that I'll answer the question, the challenge I gave you last week. If you're here last week, you recall I, I gave the challenge. How would you answer the question without appealing to divine revelation? What is a good human life? Well, it's in that second point that we'll see how these men would have answered that question. Well, let's just start with the, with the first point. I think you'll, you'll enjoy these texts if you look at your handout. Reason is what sets man apart. I'm going to show you this in first the teacher, and then I'm going to show you in the disciple who surpassed the teacher, namely Aristotle. Uh, if I didn't tell you this last week, St. Thomas likes to call Aristotle simply the philosopher. He's convinced that this is the man that more than any other had achieved what natural reason can achieve. But number three, first of all, is Plato. 
key points in the Republic. Come then and let's consider this. Is there some function of a soul that you couldn't perform with anything else? I know it's, it's strange wording, but trying to look through to the meaning there. Is there some function of a soul that you couldn't perform with anything else? For example, taking care of things, ruling, deliberating, and the like. Is there anything other than a human soul to which you could rightly assign these and say that there are its peculiar function? Function is a technical term in Plato. The bottom line is, he said, everything that exists has something that makes it be unique. And that's what he calls the things. It, it, it's a little bit of a translation issue there, but let's not sweat that at the moment. It's called the function. So here he is simply laying forth what is it that absolutely sets the human person aside, apart? Taking care of things, ruling, deliberating, and the like. Let's take a look at where Aristotle does this now. And that's going to be a transition into our second point. Presumably, however, and this is in the context of us talking about happiness. So in this, in this little quotation here, you're both going to see how Aristotle will make the point, the reasons what set ma sets man apart. That's our first point about reason. Then we're going to come to our final point, the beginning of it here, by seeing that reason is that wherein man is going to find his happiness. You'll see that both happen here in this quotation. Presumably, however, to say that happiness is the chief good seems a platitude, and a clearer account of what it is is still desired. This might perhaps be given if we could first ascertain the function of man. Note, he's a student of Plato. He takes Plato's term there, and he's going to make the same point Plato did because he thinks it's so central. For just as a flute player, a sculptor, or any artist, and in general, for all things that have a function or activity, the good and the well is thought to reside in the function. So it would seem to be for man, if he has a function. Have the carpenter then and the tanner certain functions or activities, and has man none? Pause. Very, very, very important point. It's a little different approach than, than Socrates there. Aristotle's saying, we know that the carpenter has something that sets the carpenter apart from other professions. And the tanner has something that the tanner does that sets him apart from other professions. Is it possible that there'd be the function of the carpenter, the function of the tanner, but if you just turn to man, is there no such thing as the function of man? What is it that sets apart man? He answers his own question. A few sentences later. Now if the function of man is an activity of soul which follows from or implies a rational principle. There's his answer. Now he's going to go on. Human good turns out to be activity of soul in accordance with virtue. Note a transition there took place that's very important. So let's just, let's, let's just see what happened. Again, the fundamental point I don't think we have to say much more about, but I just want to pause for just a moment to savor it. In, in a day and age where we have, again, people who are called philosophers publishing books that sell a lot and are extremely influential, making arguments that there is no essential difference between human beings and other animals. A view, of course, that tends to be promoted by the dominant approach to evolution. Why would there be an essential difference between man and other animals if man is just a little bit more highly developed and happens to have an opposable thumb? Whereas, again, for these ancients, they are honing in on there is this remarkable ability that utterly sets this being apart as something other altogether 
though still like as being an animal, but still in a critical and essential sense, other. And that's what you must understand in order to understand a human being. They begin with that, then with that firmly under their belt, then they ask the question, well, what would a good one of these look like? So do you see how the key, you will never understand what a good human being is unless we first have a very clear understanding of what a human being is and how rationality is at the epicenter. So now we're in a position to move on to the next question with them, having first seen man is a rational animal. Then, well, what would a good one of these be? Just as he says, you'll never know a good tanner or a good carpenter unless you're very clear on what tanners or carpenters are about, what sets them apart, what is their function. Likewise, now that we have a key insight into who, what the human person is, we can ask the big question, what's a good one of them? And this is where these are the men, ladies and gentlemen, who coined the word that has become so central in the many centuries after them, they are the ones who took the Greek word arete, which just meant excellent or excellence. And this is what's called virtue. They refer to virtue now as what constitutes a good human person. And here is a key introduction of it. Right back in the text I was just reading you. If the function of man is an activity of soul, which follows from or applies a rational principle. So in short, if man's unique characteristic is his rationality, then human good turns out to be, this is one of the most important clauses in all of Aristotle, human good turns out to be activity of soul in accordance with virtue. And if there are more than one virtue in accordance with the best and most complete. What is his notion of virtue right there? Nothing more and nothing less than true excellence in being rational. Now, I, I shudder a little bit to say that because as I, as I say that, I know I might look excited, but you're thinking, what's so exciting about that? It sounds awfully, awfully dry. Well... <laughs> excellence in rationality. I'll, I'll just try to tempt you by saying this. If we could even see that as Aristotle and Plato saw it, we would jump for joy. Let's just try for another couple moments to get inside what's going on there. What does excellence in rationality look like? It looks like the virtues. And this is where, in this great text, Aristotle then just starts to say, let's talk about what the different virtues are. And always remember this. It's nothing more and nothing less than being excellent at being a rational animal. Do you see how here we're doing philosophy? We're not making an appeal to divine revelation here. We're starting with something that's available to absolutely everybody. They are utterly comfortable in, in making the case to anybody that it should be clear to us what a truly good and happy life is like if we just understand what it means to be human and how we're designed to be rational to use this amazing power called reason to see the truth of reality and then to put it into action in our life. And, of course, many more connections need to be made. I mean, thus, the whole science of ethics is about making the connections and drawing this out more. But you've just seen the absolute heart of the matter. That's what the virtues are. They are excellences of using reason well. Picture, if you will, for a moment, just step back from the, from the kind of, I know, that was kind of, whew, okay, that was, that was kind of you know, deep, tough, technical. Just, just step back for a moment and just, just picture, picture someone like Pope John Paul II. Picture the different virtues. 
just even naturally speaking, Aristotle would have been able to point to it and say, there it is. Just watch that happen and realize reason is beautifully governing everything. Whether you're talking about it's the humility of recognizing what my true place is, how much I owe to others, how much I've learned, how much further I have to go. It's just the truth. It's seeing that clearly. Being courageous is using reason to see very clearly some things are more important than others. Though it's difficult, I will endure this for the sake of what is more important. It's just rational and justice to render what is due. This is all just truly being reasonable. But in the, not, not in some kind of minimalist, I'll just be reasonable. It's in this beautiful, full-fledged sense of that's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be one of these rational animals and, as it were, do it right. To them, this is, this is very simple. Although not simple to do. All right. So, I'm going to wrap up by telling you about two kinds of virtues. Just, this is just to give you just a, a little teaser. Just to give you a little further sense. There's intellectual virtue. There's moral virtue. What's, what is the highest of the intellectual virtues? Well, lo and behold, it's actually called wisdom. That which we've been talking about. And what is the main act of that highest of intellectual virtues? It's the act of contemplation, which we talked about last time. We had a little, little quotation last time. But we can't be talking about these men if we don't come back to contemplation. For one more quotation, I'm at number five. And here, by the way, he, give, he gives a nice comparison of us, just noting us in comparison to other animals. This is indicated, too, by the fact that other animals have no share in happiness. Happiness here means something very rich. Real happiness. Other animals have no share in happiness. Being completely deprived of such activity. What activity? Let's go on. For while the whole life of the gods is blessed, and that of men too, insofar as some likeness of such activity belongs to them, none of the other animals is happy, since they in no way share in contemplation. Happiness extends then just so far as contemplation does. And those to whom contemplation more fully belongs are more truly happy. Not as a mere concomitant, but in virtue of the contemplation. For this is in itself precious. Happiness, therefore, must be some form of contemplation. By the way, to connect that to the earlier point, there's no rest, according to Aristotle, like the rest of contemplation. Turn to the moral virtues. That was just a teaser on the intellectual virtue of, of, of wisdom. Two quick examples, and then I'm going to end. Two quick examples of what are called moral virtues. By the way, intellectual virtue means fundamentally a habit of thinking, a habit of understanding, a habit of reflecting, that's intellectual virtue. Moral virtue means a habit of desiring and how we act. So again, intellectual virtue, habit of understanding, of insight, of thinking. Moral virtue, a habit of desiring and of how we act. Two key examples of moral virtues, justice, and temperance. And I'm just going to say a very quick word about each. You probably have heard the definition of justice that, once again, goes back to Aristotle. Justice is to render to each what is due. And a neat point about justice, Aristotle says it always has to do with others. Justice is always fundamentally what you do, what you owe to others. So we almost might, might put it this way. Justice is 
to habitually live in the recognition of the truth that my life is for others and that fundamentally everything I have I have received in a sense it's that simple justice is all about having an habitual disposition of how will I render what is due to those in their soul there's a great order of different ones and the Greeks were clear on this the highest form of justice was what they called piety rendering what was due to the one to whom you can never pay at all the one at the top and then there's also what you owe to your parents that according to the Greeks you will never pay back period end of point isn't that great and then there's others others that you owe things to and that the just person is one who habitually lives his life in recognition of I owe joyfully I owe who I am and what I have in varying ways to those around me how's that for living rationally well as it were and then another quick example I wanted to reach you in view of that quotation number six Aristotle a good student of Plato on justice Here's Plato speaking about justice at the end of the Republic, the justice of which we were just speaking. From every point of view, then, anyone who praises justice speaks truly, and anyone who praises injustice speaks falsely. Whether we look at, it, at the matter from the point of view of pleasure, good reputation, or advantage, a praiser of justice tells the truth. While one who condemns it has nothing sounds to say and condemns without knowing what he is condemning. Isn't that a great line? People who look at the just and say, oh, well, surely that person would have been happier if he didn't, well, tell the truth in that situation or whatever, dot, dot, dot. Plato says, anyone who says that doesn't know what justice is, has not yet seen what it means to be just. Temperance. Temperance, according to Aristotle, is the virtue of putting the order of reason, that's literally his phrase, putting the order of reason into your bodily desires. <laughs> what a simple clause, it's so easy to say it. Put the order of reason into your bodily desires habitually habitually and do you know what Aristotle holds he doesn't hold the temperance as the highest of the virtues but he's very clear that it is absolutely necessary for all the other ones so let's put it this way according to Aristotle temperance is about putting the order of reason into your bodily desires so that your bodily desires actually serve are in harmony with all the other virtues and everything that's most important in life when the order of reason is fully placed into bodily desires Aristotle has a beautiful line then our bodily desires sing with one voice with our reason and all is in harmony if, if it comes to your mind wow if someone wanted to undermine virtue all you have to do is undermine temperance in the entire house of virtues because again not that it's the highest but somehow in God's design of we rational animals if our bodily desires are not imbued with the order of reason we can't have any of the other ones quick tour of that justice as we say them it will be evident to you I don't even think it will need much argument can a person really render what is due 
to all those around him if he doesn't have the order of reason in his bodily desires? Think of the most obvious example. Does the father of a family who's not chaste ever render what is due to his wife and to his children? Justice is destroyed without temperance. Prudence. Do you know what Aristotle's name for temperance is? In Greek, the name for temperance is that which preserves your prudence. The name for temperance is that which preserves your prudence. For one whose bodily desires are not in control can never deliberate clearly about how to act. You don't even have to give... Aristotle has a, uh, has a fuller-fledged argument as to why that's the case. I think most people will pretty much cede the point just upon hearing it said. Prudence itself, the, the virtue that needs to guide us in how we act, falls prey to a lack of temperance. Go now to the real queen that we were just talking about earlier, wisdom. Something that these men were always uniform on. Even if it's not clear to us why, it's always the case that the unchaste can't see the highest things. They just can't see it. And so they'll never be wise. And then finally, friendship. Friendship. Friendship of any kind will not happen without the beautiful virtue of temperance. And I think, again, there doesn't need to be much argument about that. It's clear. So what I want to do is then move on after giving you just that little tour and make, make an absolute concluding remark with my favorite topic from the ancients, and that is friendship. By just saying this to you, if you asked Aristotle what the fully good human life looks like, I think this is what he'd say to you. Naturally speaking, what would Aristotle say? He'd say, here's the good man, here's the happy man. He has what I call friendship. Aristotle would proceed to explain, what's friendship? In a word, it's two people who truly loving one another pursue virtue together. And, especially, they seek wisdom together. And they share contemplation together. They're seeking the moral virtues together. They're seeking the intellectual virtues together, culminating wisdom. And together, they are happy, for they are flourishing human persons, flourishing rational animals that together come to the point of rest. I will only give a final footnote by making a theological reference. And here we see the final thing I want to leave you about philosophy. Real philosophy leads to the openness to divine revelation. It begs for divine revelation. For imagine this. Here Aristotle said the good person, the happy human life, looks like living in friendship with other human beings and coming to the point ultimately where together you can contemplate the highest things in friendship with one another. Imagine, if you will, if he had known that which he could not have for the highest of all truths has to be revealed by the mouth of God himself, which Aristotle, in any case in this life, never heard. But imagine the fulfillment of his own worldview when one day he found out 
that the fullest happiness of man isn't simply together with your friends to contemplate that which is highest, but lo and behold, that which is highest has invited you to be his friends and to live that friendship by seeing him as he sees himself. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Dr. Kodabak. As, uh, as Dr. Kodabak was speaking, I was thinking about some of my time back at Christendom and um, how I oftentimes struggled, loved what he was saying, but struggled to understand what he was saying. And he gave the definition of, of virtue as living rationality well. And I would ask how many of us could give a good definition of rationality. If we had a piece of paper and a pen, how many of us could give a good definition of it? I found myself in the first uh, month or two at Christendom College sitting in Dr. Cutterback's classes, and um, he would ask a question, and I would raise my hand. Because you want to be able to give an answer to the question of what is rationality. And I would raise my hand, and he would call on me, and I wouldn't have anything to say. <laughs> because I realized that I didn't have any decent answer for the question, but that I really wanted to answer it. And um, <laughs> after a while, I stopped calling. <laughs> we got over that because I, I just started sitting on my hand. But um, but uh, I bring that up because Dr. Cutter is going to be coming back to speak for us again during Lent on, lo and behold, the virtues, human nature, and the virtues, and being able to spend. Uh, well, I have it set. He doesn't know this yet for three weeks, but um, <laughs> spend uh, some time. Uh, look at what is rationality, what does it mean to be a human being, and he gave a quick introduction tonight. When Socrates just starts to talk about the four cardinal virtues, um, he, he mentions them as though they're already held, so there already had been some discussion of these as the fundamental virtues, but there had not been a systematic presentation of these the way that there is in Plato, and matching them up with specific powers of the soul, and then Aristotle is the one who perfects that and has the same list of the powers of soul that St. Thomas Aquinas will end up having. And so St. Thomas's great moral work this, in, in his Summa of Theology, in the whole big second part that's on morality, it's all based upon the division into different virtues. Now, first he does the three theological virtues, which Aristotle would not have, because those are simply supernatural virtues. But then the whole rest of it is in terms of the four cardinal virtues, understood fundamentally as Aristotle had. And Aristotle had been a little further development of Plato. But they are the ones who really saw this. How come Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, how were they so optimistic that they could achieve this wisdom that was so difficult to achieve? That's a great question, and I would say somehow, I, I think if St. Thomas were answering this question, I wish he were, um, <laughs> that, that, he would, that he would say it was fundamentally by the grace of God, but let's be a little bit more specific. What they really got right was they, they had the balance of humility and thus a certain fear of they're not going to get this right but at the same time, the courage and the magnanimity, the greatness of soul to really go for it. I mean, so the more we learn the virtues, and we see how amazingly beautiful it is that there's this a kind of boldness of courage connected with a, a, a real humility of, I can't do it on my own, but that's not going to keep me from, from really trying. I say that, but the other thing I'd say is they, for whatever reason, by the grace of God, we're able to see things as they are. I mean, this is the way reality is that good. It is that beautiful. And you can come to wisdom. So they are, when you say they're optimistic, they have real hope. The thing about hope is you're hopeful for a reason. Hope isn't for no reason. So they saw enough to see that they could do this. And, of course, they were right. That's the thing. They're right. 
you can do this. Many, of course, have not seen it. But we, we can, as it were, console ourselves. They were seeing the, the reality that's there, which is there for us to see. May I say this line also? I love this line. We will never see things clearly enough to understand just how good reality is. It's always better than you've begun to understand yet. And that's just the truth. And the truth can be seen, even if it's difficult. How? I mean, great question. Great question. You said that, they said, life is not about motion, but about fruition and then resting there. Well, what about um, decay, corruption, death, and all? I mean, that's pretty obviously there. Yeah, well, uh, good, good, good question. Good question. What about death? Two things. First, if you talk about the lower natural world, they would say that death of those lower things is always in the context of life, and that with living things, the grand old oak tree comes to death after it has thrown forth the acorns from which literally hundreds of progeny come. And so death is part of a natural cycle there that is fundamentally about life. In other words, trees make more trees, and we always have the trees. The old trees do die, but trees are not about dying. Trees are about living and bringing us more trees. Though they do die, it's fundamentally about the continuance of trees, though the individual. And this, this is the root, actually, for a very beautiful insight into it's about the common good. It's not about the individual tree. It's about, as it were, the common. Now, there I'm talking about the lower things. Now, when you come to the higher things, I mean, this is just, this is just utterly amazing. I mean, Aristotle had complete confidence because, again, he saw the truth, and the church holds this too. You can, you can come to see naturally how man will endure, how his soul will endure. Imagine what it would have been like for Aristotle to be certain that the human soul will keep existing. But from the viewpoint of natural reason, he's not sure what will come next. But he nonetheless was sure that it must somehow be good. And there was no question in these men's mind, as there's justice in this life, there would be justice in the next, that somehow those who lived well, it would be rewarded. And so there, I mean, again, it's about fruition. It's about the good life will be rewarded, which raises the question again, how could they have such confidence? How could they have such confidence? Well, yeah, good question, but at the same time, they're right. So clearly it wasn't the wrong confidence, was it? I mean, somehow they were seeing, thank God, what is the reality of the matter? I mean, isn't it incredibly consoling? The truth is that good. Anytime we're tempted to be depressed, we should just remind ourselves, in a very real sense, there's nothing to worry about. But not to say that in any kind of shallow, as though you're not going to suffer or something. You really have to have the deep view to see the truth of there's nothing to worry about. You have to really already be virtuous then you understand. Because then, in fact, you don't worry about suffering. There's nothing to really worry about when your priorities are straight. Again, the more you see the truth, the better things keep getting. I'll ask the last question because I think it'll put to rest any other questions that might be out there. Um, Besides, that is at the airport. (laughs) And I get to preface my question. I don't allow other people to do so, but as the director of the institute. Should I sit um, down? (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Cutterback enjoys farming pigs. And um, you said that philosophers seek after wisdom, knowledge of the higher things, and so forth. Why would a philosopher such as yourself enjoy raising pigs? That's going to re- put to rest every question that it might is, be out there. It okay, is. Uh, I, I knew you were just going to ask that. <laughs> um, though, honestly, I do appreciate that question, and I will in all seriousness answer 
particularly in view of the fact that yesterday one of my favorite little pigs died in a tragic accident. Um, but, but honestly, and, and all the children were right there, and we all just kind of looked on in, in, in amazement, but it was another opportunity to reflect that it teaches, it helps me to learn what I'm telling you that I know that Aristotle already saw and that I'm still trying to learn or have greater confidence in myself that, that it's all in an order, there is nothing to worry about, and that the fundamental order of things is a very good one and that we're called upon to steward it. And it's an occasion in wonderful and ever new ways to have insight into who we are and where we came from. Thank you, Dr. Cutterback. Thank you. See, it was a serious question because I knew he would enjoy that question <laughs> and be able to give some philosophical answer to it. And so I will, I will tweak something I say all the time, and that is turn off your televisions, and my tweak tonight is start farming pigs. I'll see you on Sunday, God willing. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.